I was really curious, you know, having failed on that assault in Kyiv, uh, and now with Russia trying to sort of make up for lost ground or, or changing the focus of their war in Ukraine to the east, I was really interested to find out what's going on inside Russia. This is meant to be one of the most powerful militaries in the world. They've been essentially defeated or pushed back by a smaller neighbor, much to their surprise, obviously, because they had planned on winning this quickly. And so now they're trying to shift gears and so on. And I was really curious, what's going on inside Russia? What's going on within the security services? So joining me now is Andrei Soldatov. He's a non-resident senior fellow with the Center for European Policy Analysis. He's also a Russian investigative journalist and co-founder and editor of Agentura.ru, a watchdog of the Russian secret services activities. He's been covering security services and terrorism issues since 1999, and he's also the co-author of a recent article called Vicious Blame Game Erupts Among Russia's Security Forces. So I wanted to know more. To tell us all about it, joining me now is Andrei Soldatov. Thank you so much for your time tonight. Uh, thank you for having me. It's such an interesting insight that you have inside what's going on within Russia's security services, uh, because one can only imagine the sort of... Uh, Disconcerting, how disconcerting it's been for them to perform so badly so far in this war in Ukraine. What is going on? How much blame is going on right now within the upper echelons of the Russian security services? Yes, it is. Uh, it is a very interesting development and, and and actually a very interesting story right from the beginning. Uh, well, because it was so unprecedented on so many levels. This war started with Vladimir Putin attacking his own people. Uh, as you probably remember, uh, the war was basically announced at the meeting of the Security Council. And at that very meeting, Vladimir Putin decided to attack his chief of the Foreign Intelligence Agency, uh, Sergei Narushkin, uh, basically humiliating him uh, in front of the members of the Security Council, and this meeting was also aired on the Russian television. So everybody watched it, and it was absolutely like unprecedented. We never see Vladimir Putin before attacking security services and uh, and generals of uh, of the security services. When the war started, lots of people inside of the security services got absolutely confused because what they envisaged was absolutely different from what uh, happened the very first day of the war. Uh, my contacts inside, and especially inside of the FSB, the Federal Security uh, Service, which is a domestic agency, but they, uh, this agency also has a, uh, um, a task to uh, control things in the former Soviet Union, meaning espionage operations in countries like Ukraine and Belarus and uh, Central Asian states. And uh, people inside told me that they expected something like the operation of NATO in 1999 in Serbia. Then uh, when a series of airstrikes hit Belgrade and finally there was a change of, of the regime. But what we got was absolutely different from that. Exactly. I mean, and one would imagine, I, I guess that came as a surprise. Where do you think uh, in all this, where did the fault lie? How could they have been so unaware of how this would unfold in the early days in Kyiv? Well, I think that 
here we have two narratives. One is that uh, Putin was misinformed by his spies, by, by his department of the FSB. So they presented him with a wrong picture uh, about the political situation in Ukraine. And bec mostly because uh, everybody knows that Putin has a very and had very strong opinions about Ukraine. So it was really risky to challenge him on Ukraine and say something which might contradict his uh, his ideas about Ukraine. On the other hand, there is a there is a second narrative which basically says that FS the FSB they sort of they try to prepare some scenarios about what might happen in Ukraine if say. Uh, Putin decides to uh, use aviation, so mostly uh, well, airstrikes uh, for weeks and weeks. And only after that, some political crisis might unfold in Kiev. And that would be a moment to, to try to change something on the ground, uh, specifically in Kiev. And that for some mysterious reason, and I don't know the answer. Putin changed his plan and said, and well, ordered it actually his troops to attack immediately. Which, to be honest, militarily speaking, doesn't make any sense. The usual tactics is always to stop the fire strikes and to wait for some weeks until the moment that you feel that the national infrastructure is weak enough and the armed forces of your enemy uh, are weakened enough. And only after that, uh, you send your tanks in. Putin did something completely different. He sent his tanks immediately after he started uh, airstrikes. We've read, and this is mostly from Western sources, of course, we've read that Putin is, in fact, controlling or at least dictating what's going on in this war. And one would imagine that can't be a particularly good idea. Is it causing a lot of disharmony within the security services in Russia? And, and if it is, we really haven't seen much evidence of it, at least on this side of the narrative. Yes, it looks like Vladimir Putin wanted to be uh, in control of everything, uh, uh, if, even including the things on in, in, in Ukraine, I mean, the way the military operation was conducted. And that was the biggest question everybody had uh, during the first and part of the second month of the war, why we didn't see a military commander from the Russian side who was in charge of the situation on the battlefield, why we saw only statesmen and uh, figures in Moscow. You cannot, uh, well, militarily speaking, uh, control and, uh, well, I don't know, run an operation, a military operation from Moscow if you have this operation uh, in, in Ukraine, because it's a very long distance and you need to have somebody, some general to be in charge of the situation, of the local situation, of the situation on the battlefield. And only after, as far as I remember, 40, 45 days after the war, Putin finally appointed a general to be in charge of the situation on the battlefield. You've spoken about the reaction. So, so the opening phase of this military operation, this invasion, is a failure. Uh, there's then a recalibrating of, of objectives uh, back towards the Donbass and the east, the south, 
this you know the famous land bridge to Crimea, perhaps as far uh, as far as Transnistria. Uh, how was that received by the military when Putin announced that there would be new objectives in this war, and the original objectives were going to be scrapped? Well, it looks like they're really unhappy with this uh, change of uh, strategy. And uh, I'm talking not only about my contacts and the security services or, or the military. The big thing now uh, in Moscow uh, is, is Telegram, because Telegram is a social media and provides you with the option uh, to read the so-called channels. And lots of people use these Telegram channels to uh, not only to chat, but to um, uh, to get information about what is going on. And many of these channels are run by, by the military. Uh, so just yesterday, one of the most uh, prominent and popular uh, channels, which is known to be very close to the military, uh, conducted a poll. And, it's, and we are talking about thousands of thousands of people. And the question was, what do you think about, how do you feel about the objectives of the war? What should be the objective? What, would, what should be the final uh, result of the war. And uh, I checked it, and it was quite surprising that, uh, let me open it, is it says that 24% uh, want the Russian troops to come to the border with Poland, meaning the complete occupation of Ukraine. 33% uh, want a complete capitulation of Ukraine. And only 6% uh, wanted an, uh, a liberation of, of the Donbass region. So, so popular support in Russia clearly is for something far more extensive than what's on the table right now. Yes, uh, they actually they believe that the stakes are really high. They believe that they are facing in Ukraine not only a Ukrainian army, which is completely mobilized, uh, and the Russian army is still a peacetime army. We didn't have a, a mobilization in the country. And it's not only about Ukrainian army, as I said, but it's also about the weaponry uh, supplied by the West. Uh, so if you have that and you, and you have the peacetime Russian army and they still believe that they have some restraints, for instance, they are told by the political leadership not to uh, conduct massive airstrikes, they believe they are losing because of that. And we are asking for more. Uh, they actually, what they want, they want an all-out all war. I'm speaking with Andrei Soldatov. He's a non-resident senior fellow with the Center for European Policy Analysis. Andrei is also a Russian investigative journalist and co-founder and editor of Agentura.ru, a watchdog of the Russian secret services activities. After this, we'll talk more about if the army is pushing or the military is pushing for something bigger and broader in Ukraine. Uh, what could that mean? What could that lead to? We'll be back with that. I'm speaking with Andrei Soldatov, a non-resident senior fellow with the Center for European Policy Analysis in the U.S. Andrei is a Russian investigative journalist, a co-founder and editor of our Agentura.ru, a watchdog of the Russian secret services activities. We've been talking about uh, the dismay within the Russian military, certainly about how things have gone in Ukraine, but also with the limited scope now of activities in Ukraine. In other words, this idea of trying to focus only on the Donbass, the east and the south, and not the country as a whole. Uh, Andrei, what kind of situation does that create then if you have uh, a civilian leader, essentially Vladimir Putin, and a military unhappy with the scope of a war and essentially having to live through the humiliation of, as far as we can tell, losing this war so far? 
Well, it is uh, a very interesting and again, a quite unprecedented situation because say back in 2014, when we saw the annexation of Crimea, well, the military, uh, the army and the security services were on the same page with Putin. They completely supported him uh, in his decision to invade Crimea. They also were happy with the way it was done. It was a harmony, to be honest. Now it feels completely different. They might support the idea of, of the war, and they basically, and they said it, that they want a bigger war, but they are, they are now they're asking questions about Putin. What is quite interesting is that they never criticize Sergei Shoigu, he's a minister of defense, which is quite surprising for me because we all know that uh, Sergei Shoigu has no military education, no military experience, uh, he's a public face of the war, but the way the military performed uh, well, doesn't reflect that he, he, that he became a big military commander. Nevertheless, the military are still very supportive of him. Uh, they're asking questions mostly about spies, and that might reflect the old field between the military and the security services. And also they are creating a distance between them and Vladimir Putin, which is something new. Is this, I mean, we've had lots of different people opining about what sort of threats Vladimir Putin may face from the inside and most often dismiss uh, any threats from either uh, the security services or the oligarchs. Is this a dangerous situation then for Vladimir Putin if you're starting to see separation with the security services? I would say no yet. Uh, not yet. Uh, because right now, uh, well, the big objective to fight this war uh, seems to be uniting uh, people in the country, including people in the military, and they still believe that we need to be supportive of the president because we are facing such a formidable enemy, because we really believe that we are fighting not only uh, the Ukrainian army, but we are fighting NATO. Uh, and, but things might change, say, in a few months, because we do not see yet uh, big uh, effects of the economic sanctions. It might happen maybe in three months' time, maybe in two months' time, but not, it's not yet there. Uh, that's one thing. The other thing is that uh, for Vladimir Putin, what was always paramount is his control over Russian regions because the country is so huge. And he always was extremely sensitive about any sign of dissent in Russian regions. He believed that everything should be controlled from Moscow, and it would be, and it should be really like uh, uh, the real control, not right. some sort of uh, centralized control, control, right? Like really, yeah, absolutely, yeah. 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 And that, that is why we have this notion of the vertical of power, meaning that everything is uh, is, is is run from from one center, from Moscow. But if you have economic sanctions, and you, if you have, as a result, you have economic problems that might change the situation in, in the regions. But I'm very skeptical that the military might present a big challenge for him because the tradition, to be honest, is against it. Russian military were never really good at uh, plotting, organizing coup d'etat, uh, conspiring. They're not like, like the military in the Middle East or Latin America. What could this mean then? Because we've been reading a lot, obviously, about uh, issues like 
limited nuclear strikes, for instance, using nuclear weapons if things continue to go badly. Uh, do you think that's something, is that a legitimate concern now that, that the military will begin pushing Putin to be more aggressive if they continue to not achieve any gains in, in Ukraine? That is my concern as well, to be honest. The problem here is that if you try to think from their point of view, they believe that they picked up a fight with, uh, with NATO, but in this fight, they are not hurting NATO. They're taking hit from NATO on the territory of Ukraine. So actually, they are involved in this fighting with, uh, uh, with, uh, with people who are still quite close to the Russians. But I mean, it's not, it's not, it's not Europe. It's not, it's not the United States. And it means that you are, you are in a war with the enemy, which is, uh, which, is, uh, which is able to attack you, but you are not in position to counterattack. You're attacking only the Ukrainian army. And it sounds for them absolutely um, unacceptable. So they want to, to make something drastic, something big. And I'm, to be honest, that is why I'm, I'm really concerned not only about the possibility of a, of a tactical nuclear attack, but also about other countries. Because if, if you think that you are already in the fight with NATO, why not to attack somewhere when it actually hurt, like the Baltics or Romania, for instance, and some other countries? And you've been seeing a change in the rhetoric, I imagine, over the last 60-some-odd days. Uh, at least we've been seeing it from Russian state television, that, that the, the rhetoric is getting hotter. Yes, absolutely. And it, again, it goes uh, in these two directions. On the one hand, we are talking increasingly about the possibility of a nuclear attack, but also that we had at least one statement from, uh, from a military, uh, from this general Minikhanov, Minikhanov uh, excuse me, his name is um, um, Rostam Minikhanov, and uh, who basically said that uh, now we are entering the second phase of the war and our objective is to go uh, as far as Transnistria, which is another country, it's Moldova. Uh, and that is a clear escalation. Andrei Sodatov, thank you so much for your insight on this on this subject. I hope to speak to you again. Thank you, Ben. Andrei Sodatov.